Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we interview people who've written papers that have caught our eye. And the person that we're speaking to today is Dr. Joseph Siegel, who is a senior lecturer from the School of Humanities, Education and Social Sciences at Orebo University in Sweden. Good day to you, Joe. Uh, hi, Chris. Good to be here. How are you doing? Uh, very good, thanks. Uh, all things considered, with changes to teaching and so on. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, I should just note again that uh, we are recording this from our respective homes. So if there's any problems with the production or sound quality, I do apologize. But once again, we've uh, found ourselves an absolutely cracking guest to speak to. The paper that we're going to be speaking about is called Did You Take Good Notes? on methods for evaluating student note-taking performance. And it's a topic upon which Joe is most certainly an expert. But before we get into the paper itself, can I ask you a little bit about your background and what led you into teaching? Uh, of course. Um, since I had some inspirational teachers in high school, I knew I wanted to work with communication uh, in an educational setting. And uh, I majored in English and education when I, I was in university in the States and thought I would become a high school English teacher or literature teacher, something like that. But um, one thing led to another, and I came to Japan uh, to try out second language English teaching and liked it, and uh, things kind of went from there 20 years later. Here I am, not in Japan anymore, but in Sweden, with uh, a lot of development to get me to this point. So in terms of those developments, the work that you were doing for this paper is obviously connected to student listening. What drew you to that discipline in particular? I suppose I was looking for a sexy topic to research. My interest in listening started towards the end of my MA when I needed to do a, a small-scale project like so many MA students need to do. And I was kind of trying to decide what, what kind of topic I could focus on. And I got some advice from some students who were a few years ahead of me in the program saying, take a look at the kind of classes that you teach or that you expect to teach in the future if you want your project to be really meaningful in an educational setting and to be meaningful to your own personal development. You should focus on something that you're not so sure of yourself and that you can apply in your regular practice. And at the time, uh, I was teaching at Shimane Daigaku uh, as a part-time teacher in the English department, and I had some classes that were focused on listening. Uh, I'm sure they were titled something like Intermediate Listening or Basic Listening. Uh, and since I had listening classes to teach, and I wasn't really sure how to teach listening, I thought it would be a good chance to get this project underway, but also give myself some skills for the classroom as well. So that's where the, the interest in listening really started. It's interesting you say that because of all the skills that we talk about, so kind of listening, reading, speaking, writing, listening is the one that I hear most mentioned with the idea that you can't teach it. It's the one that's the most ephemeral, the one that's most difficult to perhaps to define what it is as a skill. I would agree with that. Did you find it a difficult topic to get into? Was there enough literature for you to get you started? Yeah, there was enough literature to get me started. Um, there are some major works from the, the 1990s in listening strategy instruction, 
uh, and, which came from ideas about language learning strategies in general. Uh, but uh, researchers and authors like Rebecca Oxford uh, had made lists of different types of strategies that good language learners used. Uh, Joan Rubin is another in the 70s who started these kind of lists. Uh, so they were trying to describe what good language learners do and try try to put some meaning behind what, what a good listener is. Uh, and uh, another important paper uh, from that time, the early 80s, uh, 1983 by Jack Richards, uh, which lists probably a hundred different listening sub-skills. Uh, so there were people who uh, several decades ago were trying to describe what listening is, which is a first step in getting it to the classroom or to the teachers and students, though there are several steps in between. Uh, so there was some early literature trying to define what listening is in more detail and um, dissect it into discrete parts, top-down processing, bottom-up processing, those kind of things, uh, taking a strategic view of listening. But those descriptions don't necessarily transfer into classroom practice. And I guess that's maybe where some of my work came in with trying to put those ideas into a, a systematic uh, classroom practice. Well, that seems like a good place to uh, jump into the paper, because you note in the paper okay. itself that um, your aim is to kind of isolate some of these discrete skills, but try to demonstrate them and improve them in authentic situations. And one of the authentic situations is, as I mentioned before, the name of the paper is, Did You Take Good Notes? Of all of the skills that you spoke about, people like uh, Richards and Err and others who have uh, tried to break down these skills into discrete points, what drew you towards note-taking as an area of research? Uh, that's a, an interesting question. I guess um, I had spent uh, some time in, during my MA focusing on listening and then for my PhD project, uh, it was expanded, uh, focused on listening, the teaching of listening in academic for English purposes type courses uh, where students were getting prepared for EMI courses or studying in their major, studying their major content, but in English. And since I was focused on this kind of academic angle towards listening, then the note taking um, kind of naturally came in. And I was interested uh, in notes as products or artifacts of listening comprehension compared to multiple choice tests or gap fill or something like that, where a student could guess the answer uh, to a question about something they had listened to, or where the, the test questions or the questions that appear on a worksheet kind of dictate what the students are supposed to listen for or direct them or funnel them, channel them in some way. And I uh, saw notes as being a more kind of wide open blank slate where whatever the student does in the notes can demonstrate their comprehension in different ways. And then I started to notice and think more about note, uh, the organization of notes or how some students take very efficient notes uh, in terms of like the number of pen strokes or keystrokes that they use or abbreviations and other students take an approach where they try to write down things verbatim which we obviously know is very challenging and might not help learning so much even if the, the words themselves are recorded so i i 
kind of took my thinking uh, in a few steps. First, it started with the listening and then listening for academic purposes, but then notes being that, that kind of natural output in an academic setting. And then thinking about uh, you know, the classes I was teaching at the time in Japan uh, of 40, 50 students, and I'd collect their notes and look at them, and their notes all looked different, and I wondered why. And some, there was some overlap in the content, uh, but some divergence in the content. And so then I just got really interested in how the brain works when it's listening, and then what, what happens when students take notes. I, I was speaking recently to Mark Helgeson, and he was talking about how uh, he wants to get his students, or it's an important thing to get your students to participate in the class by being present, by noticing things that perhaps they hadn't really thought about before, noticing sounds or noticing uh, activities and you know, sensory input uh, that they hadn't noticed before. Is note-taking something that forms a person into a good listener, or is it something that is a byproduct of being a good listener? Uh, well, I'll take the easy answer and say <laughs> some of both. Uh, uh, I think that um, if one starts uh, a listening act or a note-taking act with some ideas about how they're going to organize the notes and they, and they have predictions and expectations of what's going to come and they've rehearsed how to take notes, then I think having the system in place before you start can help someone, in a sense, be a good listener. But uh, when, it, when it comes to the, the other side of the coin of already being a good listener, that's probably going to generate more information in the notes in some ways. But this is it's a, a quite a difficult question to answer because there are going to be lots of individual factors like someone's working memory and how much information they can keep in their mind, which uh, depending on how strong the working memory is, a student or a listener may feel the need to note something down because they think they're going to forget it, thus the notes, or they might feel confident that they're going to remember it. And so they've, they've acquired the information from the input, but because their working memory is so strong, they don't need to write it down. And that's uh, what's where the teaching part can come in. Uh, mm -hmm. And the difficulty of, okay, the student didn't write the notes down, but as a teacher, sometimes I feel like I expect to see output on the paper. That's how I can confirm whether you have understood something or not. And so as the, the teaching part of me thinks, I want to see it on the paper, hmm. but the individual differences should allow the student to, uh, should allow students the right to not put it in the notes if they have it in their memory. Uh, another, another related aspect is that we take notes usually only on things that we don't know or that are novel to us. Mm. And I think sometimes in, in EAP uh, prep courses that include a note-taking component, the, the teacher wants to see the written product uh, of everything, maybe, maybe uh, and doesn't necessarily always consider that there might be a reason why the student didn't take notes of this because they knew it already or because they don't think it's important. So the, the individual nature of both ones own note-taking abilities, including working memory, handwriting speed, background knowledge, these kind of things uh, really come into play. So in order to have a, a properly calibrated study of note-taking, does there need to be a, a prior background knowledge check to make sure that what you're presenting to them is actually novel? Uh, I think that that's important that um, you present the information that you present and collect the data on 
is novel in some way. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to get to a completely laboratory type setting where the researcher could just pick something completely off topic in order to make it novel. Uh, most studies that I've read that they try to do a few different things. One, they might take content that they believe is novel to students, but not completely novel. So the students have some kind of general knowledge of a topic, but not not all of the specific knowledge that's presented in the sample lecture or the video, for instance. Uh, in in uh, one study I did in, here in Sweden, we used a uh, two TED Talks uh, on very specific scientific topics. One was about um, the evolution of cavefish, and another used with the same uh, group was about um, space exploration and very specific types of space exploration. But the students involved in the study were at um, towards the end of their high school experience in Sweden. The course syllabus uh, that's produced by the Ministry of Education requires that they listen to some kind of scientific texts. So I, I picked those texts in consultation with their classroom teachers who said, yeah, they have some kind of background in these general scientific areas, so it won't be completely new to them, which, which could negatively affect the motivation. They could start off just not understanding anything, and then they're not going to take any notes. Uh, so that would be a different problem. Uh, so the, the relationship between background knowledge and novelty is a fine line. Uh, other studies that I've read uh, have used TED Talk videos and in the limitation section, they point out that a TED Talk is for entertainment purposes more than a lecture is, where the, the TED Talk, maybe we learn something new, but it's presented in an entertaining style, and we know we're not going to be tested on it at the end. So when, when studies, including mine, use TED Talks, there's a, there's a, a gap between the way a TED Talk is planned and delivered compared to how a uh, an authentic lecture in, in an English lecture hall at university is delivered. Uh, and that's something that my, my research in note-taking, as well as others, struggles to, struggles to offset in all ways, just because the TED Talk is so convenient, uh, it's pop culture, it has interesting topics that might get students' attention. And in EAP classrooms, that's a material that lots of teachers are familiar with, students are familiar with it. So it has some positives, but also some negatives in, in terms of how it, uh, the content and also the style that would affect the note-taking studies. Well, the TED Talk that you chose for this study was the one by Gary Koufax, who is a former, I believe, Sun Microsystems founder, and then went on to work, on, work at Mozilla for Firefox. And it's a talk that I've used uh, in the past for, for several reasons. And, and I'm, I'm wondering why you chose that one, because I, I wonder if it lines up for research purposes for the same reason that I chose it for teaching purposes. So why did you select that one? Uh, one reason was the length. Mm. Uh, is, that, it um, is it five Yeah, minutes? something like that. In line with the other two talks I just mentioned, uh, this, this was used uh, as a delayed post-test uh, for some groups. And yeah, I think the time is about five or six minutes. So it fit the time and then the the topic of internet security and the idea of online stalking everyone's familiar with the internet and of course students at this teenage in these teenage years 
who are involved in the study are they're on their phones all the time so they know internet and they know internet security but maybe not the the particular specifics that the speaker gets into so that that was some consideration and um i think there'll be critiques because of the, the material selection at any time looking at this kind of research but also this kind of explanation that okay it's it's half and half some they're familiar with some that's novel are those the kind of the kind of things you were thinking of when you used it in teaching well for me i, I mean the length of course the the speed the general clarity of his speech uh, mm -hmm. and like you say it's a topic that all students have got some kind of background awareness they they have a key it's not completely new they have a way to access it they have context in their own life of i mean he talks about uh, the music that you like, the films that you enjoy, the places that you go. Um, and these are all kind of discrete one-point things that everyone has in their experience uh, with the internet. I wondered whether you chose it because the, the paper that we're talking about, just to remind you, was mm -hmm. using the title, Did You Take Good Notes? And you used the, uh, in your methodology, the notion of information units, I use. And that's kind yep. of one of the reasons why I chose this video for my classes as well, is there are a lot of discrete information points in a very short space of time. Yes, that that, that certainly played a role in it as well, hmm. the, the actual uh, breakdown of the content. So for people who haven't read your paper yet, and I do recommend going and reading it, it's very, I always enjoy reading papers that are direct and well-explained, but practical. And this is definitely a, a practical paper. Could you uh, tell us a little background to your methodology and how you describe what these information units are and then perhaps how you teach them? Sure. Uh, the, the background is that when doing a few papers and reporting classroom research about how different instructional methods that I had used and other teachers had used, how that trying to measure that the effects of that instruction on student notes, then we would have pre and post in, uh, intervention note-taking samples and then have to analyze those samples. And in the process of submitting some of those papers to different journals and getting feedback from different reviewers, some of the reviewers questioned, why, is the, why are you using the information unit? What does this mean? And so that got me thinking, there must be a need for considering what it means to take good notes from a research perspective, B because there are several measures that are used, total number of words, total number of annotations, uh, abbreviations, these kind of, of quantifiable items in notes. But when thinking about my own students' notes, they might have lots of individual words. Like if I write the and a, uh, a bunch of times on a, a note paper, those don't hold any meaning. And so I was more interested in combinations of words or, or ideas that were expressed in the notes, complete ideas rather than just individual words, because I think the individual word measurement is not very valuable. Uh, when, when you think about the mean, the intention of notes is to stimulate your recall of complete ideas. And if I looked back at my notes and it was just a lot of words, but words that didn't have many connections and that didn't help me bring about ideas in my memory, then they're not so valuable, uh, in my opinion. You're really trying to get students to develop a skill where they can recall these points at a later date. It's an authentic skill, and it's one that many students don't really 
develop naturally it requires as you say a, an intervention to help them out right and and so i'd in the teaching i would try to encourage students to prioritize in their mind prioritize the information they hear and decide what to take notes on uh, and then also how to take notes so if you if you picked up some keyword as a noun there there's probably some verb connected to it or if if you hear an adjective and you think oh i'm going to take notes on this adjective well you need the noun also to make the adjective mm-hmm. worthwhile we can't otherwise you would have very really extremely in your notes but not know what those refer to well it has to be um also it has to link to the individual mental processes of the student so some people process things linguistically some people prefer to draw pictures some people like diagrams or sequences mm-hmm. and things like that so i think that teaching note taking is is kind of a, a way of opening students eyes to the various ways that they can visually recreate the process that will help them get back to the point they want to remember at a at a future point in time right and um speaking of of pictures or symbols or a combination of those things the the uh, idea of an information unit is that the unit can be captured in any number of ways, which I think is really interesting. Mm. The, the students could write verbatim or paraphrase or use abbreviations or symbols or a, a small picture or any combination of those, as long as the idea is present in the notes. To list up some of the different methods that have been used to research listening and note-taking, some of the methods are things like the number of notations, the total number of words, content words, as you say, information units, abbreviations, test answerability, completeness, efficiency ratio. I just want to go back to test answerability, because one of the quotes that you used to use when we talked about this at uh, APU, when we worked together at Ritzemek on APU, it was teach then test, then get out of the way. Yep. Uh, could you? I can't take that credit for that. That was no, I know. <laughs> and that was uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I can explain. It's uh, in relation to note taking mm-hmm. or this 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 idea of uh, test answerability. Yeah, in in several sir uh, in several studies on note taking, the the study itself and the data analysis is conducted on the post lecture test where students have taken notes during a lecture or a video a ted talk and then they take a test on the content using their notes and that's what i did for the first study on note taking that i did or maybe the second or maybe both but um i got very dissatisfied with that kind of system because i didn't have time to ask questions about everything i wanted to ask about so if i gave students a 15 Point fifteen question multiple choice test or gap fill test about the lecture content, and I created the questions. Then, in in a way, I'm the one who's deciding what's important in that lecture or video in that material. But the students might have thought other things were important, so their notes might be very complete and very efficient and very well done and contain a lot of the information. But my quiz or my my post test only asks for a small percentage of that information. And that's, I think that's going to be true for almost anyone, researcher, teacher, who's creating this kind of post-listening quiz that they can't 
capture everything in that quiz that's presented in the original material. But if a student is, is told, take notes, uh, take as many notes as you can, or you're going to need to use your notes on some kind of post-listening activity, then they would try to take notes on everything they can. And that would be a better reflection of their comprehension of the lecture rather than their score on my 15-point quiz. Well, on that point, high-stakes testing is a big issue these days with students wanting to study overseas and wanting to get good scores on big company tests like IELTS or TOEIC. Yep. How authentic, how accurate do you think the scores for listening are in these kind of big stakes tests? How representative of the of the general skill level of a population of students do you think they are? Uh, I would say that they're pretty good representations with uh, the asterisks that because most of the tests are multiple choice, uh, at least on TOEFL, and and several of the questions on IELTS are multiple choice, then there's going to be um, a chance for guessing and getting lucky or being able to narrow down between and guess between two choices, for instance. I, I think IELTS does a better job of giving an accurate representation of a, of a test taker's listening ability because they have fill-in-the-blank activities that where, where words have to be spelled correctly, where telephone numbers have to be taken down. So then there's some kind of productive element to it. And guesswork is not really possible in those cases. Right. And yeah. I, 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 can I say one, sure. one last thing about the test answerability? The issue of the, the test maker determining what's important. And the, there's an issue of production as well, that if I listen to something and understand something and I'm expected to produce a, some kind of answer, my ability to express that answer doesn't necessarily reflect my listening ability or my comprehension ability. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point to, to kind of move us on to later on in the, in the, in the study that you wrote down here. What was the uh, end point? I mean, you say this was the delayed post-test, is that right? Yeah, it was, but but this paper doesn't describe the results of the delayed post test. You'll have to stay tuned for that. But this this the, 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 my main purpose of this particular paper was to discuss the methods that are used for analyzing notes, uh, and so that was um, kind of one one step on the note taking research path that I set out once I, I felt dissatisfied with the multiple ways that notes could be could be described as good or helpful. Uh, so the main point of the paper was to compare the different methods, which is what I tried to do uh, uh, in the middle of the paper, taking the same single single set of notes and then look at it through these different ways that notes can be evaluated to show that even if there are lots of words, for instance, there aren't necessarily lots of idea units or information units. Right. And it's interesting to, for, to hear you talk about trying to explain how you came to this methodology of uh, measuring students' uh, efficiency in, in note-taking and their ability to, to use those notes to recall them later. What other methodologies have you used in the past to measure student engagement in uh, receptive activities? I've used the, the traditional pre- and post-test uh, in, in several different cases uh, for listening and for note-taking. Surveys about students' reactions and feelings about different types of instruction 
for instance, asking students, did, when did you get note-taking instruction in your first or second language? Do you want more note-taking instruction? Do you think this is important? Will you use note-taking in the future? Uh, if, if there was a set of several different pedagogic steps that I used in a class, I would ask students reactions to different, uh, different types of pedagogies used. So I've used surveys, interviews, focus groups, with both students and teachers, uh, but the probably the main thing is examining samples of student notes. Uh, and so uh, teachers I have participating in several different schools, they would collect notes, scan them, and, and then send them to me. And that's where I, these samples in this paper and several others came from. So the, the main, the main, my main focus is on the actual note, the note taking output. In the future, I hope to do some discussions with students about why they noted something uh, and why they wrote it down in this way. And I'm trying to expand the, the methods, uh, for instance, with r recording students discussing the notes that they took and trying to point out where they're similar and different. And if they notice that they've recorded the same information in different ways is, is one way more beneficial or can they justify why they wrote something down and can they justify why they wrote down the information in the way that they did, abbreviation, image, paraphrase, verbatim, and so on uh, to raise students' awareness. And I'm also interested as a researcher to see what those kind of exchanges are like, what happens when students discuss their notes. So and that's, that's more of um, ethnographic research with the conversation analysis angle. Yeah, but so, you've, uh, you've I'm, talked I'm, in the past about having uh, kind of a, a toolbox of, of listening skills that you're trying to keep those, you know, move different levers to make sure that students have access to as much of the information that's coming towards them as possible. So outside of note taking, what are some other areas of listening that you've investigated? And um, do you have any practical advice for any language teachers uh, who would like to improve their students' skills in this area? I think it's important to understand why students are listening. What's the what's the listening purpose? Uh, and so, in that way, it's it's kind of like English for specific purposes. You the teacher has to make informed and appropriate choices of the listening text that they bring to class. And uh, ideally, those would have some kind of generic properties that the teacher could point out, so that the students can apply the same kind of, of mental approach to listening to similar types of text other times uh, in other listening events rather than have some kind of quirky text that might be interesting but is kind of a one-off that doesn't uh, have so many generalizable features uh, that students should be aware of. Uh, so, so text choice is important. Uh, I think that listening strategy instruction uh, is very important. And I think a lot of teachers say things like listen for key words or write down the main idea. But if the student themselves doesn't know how to identify or recognize what are the key words, then the, the teacher needs to take a step back and be able to articulate and demonstrate to the student, this is how you listen and this is how you draw your attention to the key words. It's not just a, throwing a dart at a dartboard to pick out the key words. Uh, so I think teachers should should not assume that students know how to listen. And it, it's a, a big challenge, I think, 
for teachers to take a step back and think, wait a second, these, these students can't understand things as naturally and as smoothly, as fluently as I can. I've actually got to step outside myself a bit and think, how did I understand that? And then try to try to use text in class to demonstrate how the teacher comprehended something and show the generic features so that students can do the same thing uh, with similar texts in the future. Yeah, it is one of the things that as we progress as teachers, we kind of have to step outside of ourselves, as you say, and think about our own experiences as language learners, because we can't assume that those skills from L1 get naturally transferred over to L2 or any future language that the students are going to be learning. Well, I think this is a good time to kind of transition from the paper in particular, and uh, just okay. to remind people of the paper that we're looking at, it's uh, Did You Take Good Notes on Methods for Evaluating Student Note-Taking Performance? But I'd like to move on and talk a little bit more about your wider uh, academic experience. As I mentioned, you, okay. you have a PhD. Um, is it from the University of Bristol? Is that right? It's a, a good guess. Aston University. Aston University. That's right. Um, <laughs> it's, it's down that end of the country. Now, I can it tell is. from your accent that you're not from Birmingham. And, is it that obvious? Well, I believe I heard once that you come from a place called Miliwake, which I believe is yes. Algonquin for the good land. So, indeed, indeed it is. It's a bit of trivia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did you come to choose that university? Right. I'm originally from the U.S. and from Milwaukee uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, so you're, <laughs> everyone will notice my very plain, <laughs> boring Midwestern accent uh, <laughs> from the U.S. But um, I was living in Japan and had done my MA through University of Birmingham. And uh, as I mentioned before, my thesis topic was on listening. And I was looking for PhD programs that would allow me to continue to work in Japan and study part-time by distance and not have to be a resident student on campus. Aston University had a program like that. And I had looked at a few others uh, in the U.S. and a few others in the U.K., New Zealand. But uh, probably the main reason why I decided to go with Aston is that my former supervisor uh, is uh, Professor Ann Burns, who has done a, a lifetime's worth of work in teacher teaching interventions and action research, which is the approach I wanted to take to listening instruction. And uh, I was lucky enough that Anne had visited APU when I was working there, and we got to have a, a, maybe a, a one-hour chat about my PhD proposal and her interest in it and how a lot of the ideas that I had about teaching listening and listening strategies aligned with the methodologies that she was used to working with and that several of her former PhD students had used. Uh, in terms of classroom research. So Anne didn't know or is not an expert in listening or listening instruction, though she's an expert in many other things. But it was the the path, the road, using action, re action research that um, she was an expert in, and that's what made me decide that Aston would, would be the best fit for me, that it would give me some some personal and academic freedom on the listening side, but I would have uh, as a as a main supervisor, someone who had done the kind of interventionist uh, research that I was interested in. And after you have graduated from your PhD, you've gone on and published work together with Professor Burns. Is that correct? Uh, yes, 
we edited a, a book together uh, called International Perspectives on Teaching the Four Skills in ELT. And we co-authored uh, two chapters in that book as well. So we, we keep in touch and um, have worked together on a few different projects, uh, that being the biggest of them. Talk a little bit through the process of moving from the master apprentice setup of a PhD supervisor and PhD candidate to being collaborators on research projects. Uh, well, I've been very lucky that Anne is open to that kind of collaboration. Uh, obviously, the, the student and supervisor get used to working together over the years and um, get used to feedback patterns and things that one or the other would pick up on and appreciate or that one would want that the other might want to revise. And so there's a, sometimes a similarity in thinking, but uh, certainly a familiarity in work patterns that, that, that have um, benefited me once um, these kind of opportunities came up. And people like Anne have a lot on their desk and want quick and efficient work. And I, I don't tend to procrastinate very much. So that's, um, if, if the first few projects were good experiences for both, then there doesn't necessarily need to be a reason why they would stop. Well, I will back up your claims of being a very efficient worker. In uh, We have actually done some uh, research together in the past. I think we published two papers together, and we've done four or five, maybe four research presentations, including one FD session right. that uh, um, went remarkably well, uh, considering the audience. Um, uh -huh. What do you find has been a difference between working in Japan in universities and, and working in Sweden? Have you noticed any differences between the type of academic setup or the way that students and teachers interact? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are so many differences. I probably only have time to mention a few. One of the, one of the things about differences between students and teachers is that there's, it's very casual in Sweden compared to what, what I see now as very formal relationships between teacher and student in Japan with the Joe sensei or Siegel sensei uh, compared to here where everyone just calls each other by their first names. And there's no, there's no Mr. Mr. Joe or no Mr. Siegel. It's all just Joe. In terms of academic hierarchy, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a professor or a, a lecturer, a part-time lecturer, everybody's office has the same plaque and the same, the, the name is written in the same way with no titles. So uh, I think that's a systematic way to try to keep things more level. Also, in terms of, of research, at least in Japan, in my experience, if I was going to do any research, I would need to do that on top of my full-time teaching and administrative job. And research is not really counted as part of the job, but something that one does in the evenings or the weekends uh, or in extra time. But in Sweden, if you get internal or external research funding, that funding covers part of your salary to free you up to do research during your work time. So in theory, if I, if I receive internal funding for 30% of my salary, then my teaching load is reduced by 30% so I can work on that particular research project. So that's in a lot of ways helped me be more productive in terms of research than I was in Japan, because in Japan, even with Kakenhi grants and internal funding, the research had to come second after the teaching and ad admin priorities, whereas here, researchers who get funding are able to make the research a priority. 
and to be completely clear, you were not necessarily unproductive in Japan. You were very productive. So uh, I'm assuming <laughs> that you're enjoying this uh, this freedom to explore these different areas and these different routes of uh, investigation. Can you give us some idea of uh, what's coming down the road from you in the future? Sure. Uh, and it's um, a great opportunity to talk about some future note-taking work. Uh, there is uh, a paper coming out in the same journal as the paper we're discussing in the journal for uh, of English for academic purposes about uh, delayed post-test results and also control and contrast groups. Uh, so note-taking studies in second language EAP courses involving those aspects that uh, I haven't reported yet. Uh, I'm also working on uh, a book for Rutledge. Rutledge's language education, research and language education series titled tentatively developing note-taking ability in a second language insights from classroom research, where I draw on uh, several of the projects that I've worked on and coordinated in Japan and Sweden, and uh, now with several other countries uh, contributing data uh, on various aspects of what note-taking in a second language is, and challenges students face, and advice for teachers, and analyzing different sets of notes uh, in different ways. So that's a, that's a major project that's that's been a year in the making already, and hopefully will be uh, on the markets uh, by next year. Wow, that, that sounds like a, that sounds like an absolutely huge project. To finish, I like to ask our interviewees what advice you would give to people who are perhaps thinking of going into doing a PhD or doing more research in academia. You, I can verify that you don't procrastinate. You you are very focused, and once you set your mind to something, you you produce a very high quality work. Would that be? the most important thing that people should consider not to procrastinate and to try and set a focus and accelerate towards it? Would that be your main advice? Uh, it, it actually wouldn't. I think uh, people work in different ways. I've just never been uh, someone who, who procrastinated and, and pulled an all-nighter to do a quality job the next day. I, I liked, maybe because I have a short attention span, I like to do things well in advance and then a little bit every day rather than doing a really intense weeks worth of work to produce the same kind of result. Uh, so that this is what works for me. Uh, I guess at different stages of one's developments, there, there are different things to do. If you're thinking uh, of starting some kind of postgraduate education, then identifying some area of need, I think, is really important. Uh, for me, it was listening uh, at first, uh, and then later I was interested in pragmatic developments and, and the EAP and now note taking. But um, I think being aware of where, being aware and looking for places where things don't make sense uh, in, in language teaching, in second language acquisition, that's, that's a good hat to put on if you're thinking of starting these kind of educational projects. If one is uh, a bit later in their career development or in the middle of or, or getting towards the end of, of a, a PhD or an MA, then thinking about maximizing the area of study that you're already familiar with is uh, the best thing to do. And I try to think about all the different ways that I can generate something from a current project that I'm working on. And if I, we use the, the paper we've talked about here as an example, this paper was not even on my radar when I started uh, a note-taking project here in Sweden. I was interested in the classroom application, how do teachers teach note-taking, what kind of text do they choose, that kind of thing. 
And during that project, as I started to get these kind of note-taking samples, uh, where some excerpts are included in, in this paper, I'd get these note samples and I'd be scoring them and rating them. And then I was interested in, okay, which of these are better notes? Well, I look in the literature and there are several different methods for analyzing notes, but none of them, or I suppose one of them, the idea unit, the information unit is the one that I thought was the most appropriate. I was not so much in favor of some of the others. So then that the idea for this paper turned into, it's, it's a paper about methods really and about demonstrating how different methods are used. So there's not really so much original data here, but rather comparing methods that were already in existence and trying to show why one is preferable to the others, at least in my opinion, but trying to back it up with, with these examples from the notes. So there's a methods paper. Another example is a paper that I had published in the TESOL journal that's uh, broad strokes about issues that note-taking teachers face, which that, that paper doesn't include any data analysis, but it's about teachers don't know, should I use authentic materials or should I use a note-taking textbook? Should students write notes with a pen and paper or should they write students with uh, write notes with a computer? Should students get to pick how they want to teach notes or should I as the teacher dictate you're using this note-taking style come hell or high water? Uh, so, th so that's more like a, a theoretical paper about choices. But, but also related to note taking. And then I've following on from the paper that we're talking about, because one of the criticisms in this particular paper is that how does somebody know what an idea unit is? The, the definition of an idea unit might be up for debate. Some idea units are going to be more important than other idea units. So there are some criticisms, uh, that can be applied to the paper that we're talking about. And I had that in mind. I knew that there were going to be potential criticisms. So then, uh, with some colleagues, in conjunction with some colleagues, we published uh, a follow-up paper where we tried, uh, it was myself and four other colleagues, uh, rated the same notes to see how consistent we could be in applying a three-tiered scoring system to the IUs about whether the IU was very important, important or not so important. And so that built from this particular paper. So that's the kind of thinking that I think it would be really useful for people who are maybe in the, the, towards the end of their academic studies or who are looking for something else to do, think about all the little parts that you can develop into different papers or different trajectories for research. And don't try to do everything at once. I, I've, I've worked in some group projects where, where some of my collaborators want to include problem X and problem Y and problem Z all in the same paper, even though we hadn't originally planned on targeting those. And, and I tried to explain to them, at least from my point of view, that's great. In the limitations in our current paper, we write that. And then we take another six months and we write a full-blown paper on that particular topic instead of trying to squeeze two more paragraphs into a paper that's already quite full. I've been well served by planning things out like that and keeping my eye open for potential new trajectories. Yeah, that's that, that exactly the point. I was going to kind of uh, summarize it as being making sure that you you don't have to do everything in, in one paper. It's very difficult to get through all of the background and everything that you tried to do in what could have been a six-month or a one-year or a two-year study in one single paper. Organize the right. pieces of information into, well, I mean, similar to this paper, into information units and build a paper around each one. And then you get to actively explain and uh, give all of the information that's connected to it without having to say, as you said, 
rush all of one section of the information into one or two paragraphs when it really deserves a, a paper of its own to breathe and really be well explained. So thank you very much for your time today, Joe. To remind you, the name of the paper is uh, Did You Take Good Notes on Methods for Evaluating Student Note-Taking Performance? We really hope that uh, this community activity grows and develops from here, but thank you very much for your time, Joe, and I wish you the very best in your future research. Oh, thanks, Chris. It's been great being here, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about my research. Believe it or not, not everyone is so interested. Thank you very much for your time. Have a good day. You too. Thanks. If you'd like to contact the show, then you can do so at lostincitations at gmail.com. You can also like and rate and leave a comment at the places where you download your podcast from. We also have pages on Facebook and LinkedIn. But the most important way would be, if you do like the show, recommend it to a friend, a colleague, and see if they like uh, the content that we're putting up online. Thank you very much.